Unemployment and crushing poverty from Alabama to the Bronx in New York City is crushing tens of millions of workers and their families. COVID-19 isn't the cause, but it is certainly making life even harder. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. We'll talk about how the economy can be reconstituted on a new basis so that the needs of people and the planet come before profit. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The System is the Sickness When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf, that's W-O-L-F-F dot com. Professor Wolf, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Brian. I'm glad to be here. We're very honored to have you once again. Professor Wolf, you know New York City, the five boroughs in the Bronx, predominantly uh, black and Latino area of the city. One out of every four people is unemployed. Back in February, uh, before COVID, the unemployment rate was 11%. Uh, Then it spiked to like 35%. Now it's down to 26%, one out of every four. And then not too far from the Bronx, as you know, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, the unemployment rate is now about 3 or 4%. In February, it was 1%. But, you know, this isn't uh, going between uh, a border between countries. It's not like going from the United States to Mexico or some other country with a different social and economic order. This is just a couple miles away from uh, people in the same city, New York City. Anyway, crushing unemployment. Well, you know, capitalism as a system has always been this way, and really this is not an exception. As one critic of capitalism put it years ago, the system is remarkably capable of producing great wealth, but unfortunately it is equally capable of maintaining horrific poverty. It's a system that produces, in short, this kind of inequality between Manhattan and the Bronx, between North and South in many countries, including our own, uh, between urban and rural. Uh, It is a system that is extremely uneven, unbalanced, 
producing the polarities that then, of course, generate envy, bitterness, social divisions. We're living through them. The Trump era has simply heightened all of them. But as the book was entitled, the problem here is the system. It's not this or that period or this or that moment or even this or that pandemic. It is a system that produces this kind of inequality, always has. And if all you do is bemoan the fact, and let me note that um, Mary Daly, who's the head of the Federal Reserve Bank in, in San Francisco, recently gave a notable speech, different from the uh, chair of the Federal Reserve, Mr. Powell, because she admitted that the recent policies of the Fed have done nothing but worsen inequality. It was a rare admission of a normal situation. And if you don't deal with this system and all you do is bemoan the inequality, you're not going to get very far in ending it. Richard, let me read to you a little bit from the New York Times about this story. More than one in four workers in the West Farms neighborhood is out of work. They were store clerks, hotel housekeepers, waitresses, cooks, four hired drivers, security officers, and maintenance workers before the coronavirus snatched away their livelihoods. Even before the outbreak, most were barely getting by on meager paychecks and scant savings. Now their hopes for a better life are slipping away as they fall behind on rent, ration food, and rack up credit card debt. Unemployment in the poor and largely Latino enclave of 19,000 in the Bronx was double digit before the outbreak. It has gotten far worse. Now, one thing about this, this article in the Times, and this is what comes through in all of these stories about economics, uh, whether they're in the general interest part of the newspaper or in the financial pages themselves. It's this, this sentence. They were store clerks hotel housekeepers, waitresses, cooks, four hired drivers, security officers, and maintenance workers before the coronavirus snatched away their livelihoods. Well, the coronavirus didn't snatch away their livelihoods. I mean, coronavirus exists. They've lost their jobs since the outbreak of the pandemic, but it wasn't coronavirus that snatched away their livelihoods. Let's just talk about the way this is presented in the mainstream media. Yeah, the language is very important. It, it's like uh, the one that I've always emphasized in the classes I teach, the notion that there are, quote unquote, job creators, as if the existence of the job is the dependent uh, thing that the generous corporate employer gives you. The only reason a capitalist ever hired anybody was because he or she, that is the employer, made money off of you. And the only way to understand that, and this is sort of basic economics, is to understand that it will not pay an employer to give you, let's say, $20 an hour, unless you're coming to work eight hours a day, five days a week, or whatever it is, adds more value to what the employer sells than the 20 he has to give you to come there to do the work. In other words, to use simple English, 
you've got to produce more for the employer than he pays you to come there to do it, which means he's not giving you something, you're giving him something. You're giving him more than he is giving you, which is why you have that feeling of being ripped off after your job and why you are so often tempted to go to a place that offers you a happy hour after that experience. Um, So yeah, the language is crucial. It was not the coronavirus that lost you your job. Another way to drive the point home is no European country, not even England, which is so similar in many ways, allowed the virus, which has been devastating in places like England or Italy, uh, France, Spain, they did not permit the virus, which was bad enough as a suffering a source of suffering for their people. They did not permit the virus to, on top of it, impose unemployment. They didn't permit it. They simply said, everybody keeps their job, basically, and the government will help pay your wage so that the corporate uh, employer doesn't have to carry the burden of keeping you on the payroll at only the employer's expense. Governments have come in and basically picked up 70 to 90% of the wage but you don't lose your job. You're not unemployed. That job is yours. When the virus passes, you will get it back. You will not suffer unemployment. You will not suffer income loss, and you will not suffer the anxiety of wondering whether you will have a job uh, a year from now. So this, this is how they reacted. Here in the United States, we didn't react like that, and that's the reason one out of four people Uh, in that part of the Bronx, faces this disaster on top of their anxieties about getting sick or having their loved ones get sick. We've added, the cruelty is unspeakable here. We've added in a time of pandemic the unnecessary addition of unemployment. Richard, uh, the, the government, you know, this is a policy choice, basically. Mass unemployment was a policy choice. Yep. that I mean, uh, what you're saying is the governments, the government could have done what governments in Europe did. Certainly, what the government in China did. Uh, yep. They closed the economy, but said to the workers, "Look, uh, you're not going to lose your job, and we, the government, are going to pay your salaries. And by the way, in order for you to stay, in the case of China, stay in your home in Hubei province, a province of seventy million, a size of France, we're going to bring food to your homes and nurses to the homes, so that." You know, you're going to we're going to be able right. to take your temperature and test you and then do contact tracing, all of that. And now you have uh, two hundred uh, and twenty thousand uh, people who have died. Two hundred and twenty thousand have died in the United States uh, compared to four thousand in China. And China's four times bigger than the United States. Uh, not not only that, but the government said, look. We're, we're not going to do that because that's an authoritarian model or whatever, a big government model. But we are going to uh, subsidize. We're going to help out. We're going to pass the CARES Act and take other measures. And they had something called the PPP, uh, the Personal Paycheck Protection Loans, supposedly to small firms. Uh, and $522 billion 
right. was used, again, not for salaries, but given to the companies who then were presumably going to give it to their employees and especially to the small companies. Now we have this report out that of the $522 billion that was spent, 1% of the of the borrowers, 1% got 25% of that $522 billion. And sh- shock, 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 uh, it's some of the biggest corporations in America. The 600 largely, uh, mostly large companies, including dozens of national chains, received the maximum amount allowed under the program of $10 million. Uh, here, I'll read to you from the Treasury Department. Officials from the Treasury Department and the Small Business Administration, SBA, have argued that the program primarily benefited small businesses because a vast majority of the loans, more than 87%, were for less than $150,000. But the new data shows that more than half of the $522 billion in that same ta- same time frame went to the biggest businesses and only 28% of the money was distributed in amounts less than 150,000. And and for our audience, for our listeners, the companies at first were it was mandatory that they would have to use the loan from the personal paycheck protection program to pay workers salaries so that they wouldn't go hungry. But then it became optional. And I I was just looking through a law journal, a law uh, industry magazine for for lawyers for law firms. These huge law firms got big uh, chunks of the PPP money. So they applied. They knew how to apply. They knew how to get really at the front of the line, and they got the money. Yeah, well, you know, let me be a moment a little harsh, even for me. This is capitalism. The way capitalism works, uh, if I could get biblical for a moment, it might be described this, this way. To them that have shall be given. And from them who have not, yea, even from them, something will be taken. This is the way this system works. It doesn't just work that way in the everyday business world, where every small and medium business will tell you the the eight million ways that big business has an advantage over them. Big businesses get treated differently when they go to the bank for a loan. Big businesses get treated differently when they go to the government to get policies to favor them. Big businesses have access to the media in a way that small and medium cannot, and on and on and on and on. It's an, it's everything other than a level playing field. And when it comes to bailing out the society, because it has the bad luck to have both a capitalist crash and a viral pandemic at the same time, That doesn't mean that the normal rules of capitalism don't apply. So they use their teams of lawyers. They use their uh, connections with banks to get the advantage. And, And all you're reading is the final exploration by a few specialists, and I'm grateful to them, telling us how it worked this time. Let me add one thing that the the press hasn't covered. Many of the applications for the PPP program were routed through banks. 
In other words, the government dealt with the bank, the bank worked with the government agency, often the bank kind of uh, explained to the little business or the medium business or the big business how to best frame your request, how to fill out the forms, how to provide appropriate documentation. And of course, the bank has always served the biggest businesses with the most personnel and the greatest care, because that's where the money is in a system that runs like this. And so, of course, the biggest businesses got the best and first attention of the bankers, who in turn used all of that uh, to give them a leg up when it came to getting the bigger grants, getting them sooner, and so on. So, yeah, this is more of how a system works. The same system that would throw... 20 million people out of work rather than helping them in a time of pandemic, adding unemployment to their problems, the same system that could even think of doing that, let alone doing it, will then, of course, distribute whatever relief it provides in the same fundamentally unequal way. Richard, the, um, well, you know, let me just ask you, could we get rid of the banks? Could we have a system where banking was not for private profit, that banks perform the function of, you know, providing credit or a place for people to save their money, that instead of being the dominant sector of the economy <clears throat> and the, the, the biggest monopolies in the country that then have the insider information about the health or lack thereof of the other industrial corporate entities such that they can decide which corporations live and which die, which are forced to merge. Instead of having a system of, by, and for bankers, why not just get rid of the banks? I mean, why? I mean, again, people always think of a, a given social system as like something that is forever, but you don't have to have a system where bankers, a tiny fraction of billionaires and and maybe they're not billionaires, but close to it, individuals who basically produce no real wealth. I mean, what does a banker do after all? What does a bank actually produce? They just have this the store of capital, of money capital, and this immense power that comes with it. But why not nationalize the banks? I mean, not bank deposits. I'm not saying take the money that people have saved, but why not just get rid of the banks? I'm glad you asked the question because what it does is take something that people think is necessary or maybe like a, you know, like a rainstorm, just part of nature and you have to live with it. And it quazes the question, is that really true? So let me use the economics that I've studied all my life and that I teach to give you an unequivocal, clear answer. And I won't base it on what might hypothetically be, although I could. Let me, in fact, answer your question by telling you what other parts of the United States and in the rest of the world, how they handle banking differently. Let me start with the rest of the world. Uh, coming out of World War II, a number of countries in Europe, and I'm going to focus on France, a major player there. Uh, over the last several centuries, coming out of World War II, most banks in France were nationalized. The government took them over 
And the argument was very simple. The government, subject to the political winds of the society, uh, is answerable to the public for what it does. If the banks loan at better terms to big companies than middle and small ones, the middle and small ones will raise uh, a ruckus. They'll say this is not fair. This is not appropriate. And by the way, that's exactly what happened. And the banks could not do the favoritism to the big that they wanted to do because politically it was impossible because the bank was a public institution. It's as if uh, your local public uh, bathing beach uh, gave wonderful sand area to rich people in the community and the rest of us had to go swim where the sewage pipe comes out or something like that. We would raise a ruckus because it's a public beach. It's maintained by the taxes we all pay and we will not tolerate that kind of discrimination. That could be done with banks. That was done in France and other European countries. It was part of what came out of the Great Depression, the, the uprising of masses of unemployed in those days, who demanded changes in the system exactly along the lines uh, your question implies. And now let me give you an example from the United States. We have 50 states. In one of them, one, namely, and this may surprise some of you, North Dakota. In the state of North Dakota, they nationalized the bank. That is about 100 years ago, if I remember around 1916 is the date in my mind, but it was close to that time, a little over 100 years ago. They established something called the Bank of North Dakota. And the people then called themselves, by the way, populists. They were kind of radical workers and farmers. They wanted a bank that wasn't a big external national bank that would uh, treat the richest few in North Dakota very well and basically tell everyone else uh, to take a hike. They didn't want that. They wanted a bank that would be first and foremost responsive to the citizens of North Dakota and to the overwhelming majority of small businesses, small family farms that were the economy at that time and that in many ways still is a large part of North Dakota. The big banks from the West and the, from New York and so on have tried for the last century to get rid of the Bank of North Dakota. But a succession of governors and legislatures, both Republican and Democrat, have been pressured by the people of North Dakota and they have repulsed every effort to get rid of that bank. And so the state of North Dakota now has its own bank called the Bank of North Dakota. And let me stress what that bank does. Number one, it gives preference to medium and small businesses. It gives preference to the citizens. It treats everyone the same. And if it makes a profit, here's the thing that'll blow your mind. If the bank makes a profit, that profit is turned over to the state of North Dakota, which can therefore lower the taxes 
on the businesses and people of North Dakota because it doesn't need the revenue in taxes from them to the extent that they earn a profit on their banking. It's called a win-win situation. And once it was achieved 100 years ago in North Dakota, it has been jealously guarded and preserved. And neither Republicans nor Democrats, however pressure was put on them by the big banks in this country, they knew they would be voted out of office in a heartbeat if they dared to do anything other than protect and preserve the Bank of North Dakota. So you don't have to speculate whether we could get by without private banks gouging us. Of course we could. We have been in North Dakota for the last century and in many other countries in the world where either the banks have been nationalized or they are on much stricter controls uh, that are politically responsive to the people than what we have in this country. That's such an important point, Richard. Last last week, uh, we I asked you, or we were talking about revolution, and I was making the point that you wouldn't actually need to have a revolution, a social or socialist revolution to accomplish certain basic things in the United States, because some of these things have been accomplished in other countries that are still, you know, retain the capitalist system. And you're talking about in a particular state, a state within the 50 states that has uh, that system. And and you made the argument, you made the point that revolutions happen uh, when, when when the existing system and the existing powers that be don't provide the reforms that are actually achievable. It's not that it's impossible to achieve under capitalism. It's that the capitalists or the government that acts as their agents won't do it. And that creates a revolutionary type situation. And again, it it shows the interconnectedness between reform or unmet reform and then the expansion of people's consciousness who are fighting for the reform, but then come to the conclusion, well, if this is achievable, it's if it's at hand, if it's doable, and yet it won't be done because it impinges on, say, the profit margin or the power, the economic power or political power of the entrenched elites, then uh, we have to f- use other means to f- fight for the reform. So the, the sequence between reform and revolution is... is it's contradictory, but it's connected. And and these are the kind of things that I think are so important for people to, to think about in the United States. Could we have Medicare for all? Yes, that's not even radical. That's not socialized medicine even, which would in turn not be radical. It exists even in conservative countries like like the UK, which has a conservative right. government. But it would almost take a revolution in America, it seems like, to get something so basic. Well, you know, the history of revolutions is precisely that. They tend to happen in countries that couldn't because they were sclerotic. They had frozen their old system, so they couldn't adjust. They couldn't make the reforms. And as you point out, thereby they produced the demand for change that becomes revolutionary because you've blocked the opportunity for uh, the reform. If I could just add to the conversation we had a minute ago, 
There are many efforts across the United States right now in a number of states and in a number of cities to create public banks. I, for example, have had occasion to be helpful to a group in Santa Fe, New Mexico, who are trying at the level of that city, uh, the capital of New Mexico, to develop a local urban municipal public bank uh, in order to get around the gouging of the private banks. There is in the United States, and you might want to pursue this, something called the Public Banking Institute, PBI. It has assembled an excellent research department, an excellent publications department, and they keep track of all of the efforts across the United States, past and present, to move in the direction of public banking. So it's not just a possibility. It's not just in in other countries. It's not even just in North Dakota. It's all over the place because many people have been developing the very consciousness you speak of and beginning to move determinedly in that direction. Richard, I want to ask you one final question, get your opinion on this other important area. Uh, Obviously, Americans are more politically engaged than they have been for some time. The, The voter turnout was so high this time, not by global standards, but by U.S. standards. Uh, We had more people voting than ever. And this was a sign of political engagement. Uh, Joe Biden got seven, uh, got almost 80 million votes. That's the most any candidate ever received. Um, Donald Trump's vote went up by 11 million over 2016. So even though Biden got uh, 7 million more votes than Trump, Trump got 11 million more votes than he did in 2016. Now, if you if you drop out California and New York State, the the popular vote is about even around the country because California and New York, by a vote of seven million, uh, favored Biden. Seven million more Biden voters than Trump voters. So, let's assume the country is engaged politically but divided politically, and the division is characterized as red meaning Republican, not the old style red, which used to be socialist or should be socialist, but red state Republican or blue state Democrat. Now I'm looking at a story and the headline is West Virginia food banks struggling to meet soaring demand. And I want to read a couple sentences to you because these, this is a state that voted Trump. It's a working class state. Anyway, here's, here's what it says. Hunger stalks tens of thousands of people, young and old, in West Virginia. Feeding America, the nationwide network of food banks, estimates that 250,600 people in the state struggle with hunger every day. Of those, 73,000 plus are kids. Food banks are are an essential link in the effort to feed the hungry. They collect, sort, and store a wide array of food items and then distribute that food to local pantries, soup kitchens, daycare centers, homeless shelters, et cetera, et cetera. Now the, 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 these food pantries are running out of food because the demand is so great. So even there, the government sort of sends money to private NGOs or you know, com- uh, organizations that provide food, and then they have to get the food, they have to distribute it, et cetera. My point is this. This hunger that's affecting 
Americans is in red states and blue states. And it seems to me that in order to create real change in the United States, the paradigm of the red-blue Democrat-Republican has to be broken such that huge parts of the working class that are under either the the leadership or look to the leadership of the Democratic Party or to the Republican Party and and or especially Donald Trump, but who don't necessarily and in fact don't agree with the policies pursued by either party, that there has to be a way to mobilize this big part of the working class around its own interests. And no interest is greater. No interest is more central than the interest of food. Anyway, Let's just talk about that in, as our final part of this interview. All right. If 250,000 uh, folks in West Virginia uh, are going hungry or have to worry about what is nowadays called food insecurity, used to be called hunger, um, and if you remember or know that the state of West Virginia has about 1.8 million uh, population, then here's what we've just heard from you. One in seven people, men, women, and children, one in seven people in that state doesn't get enough to eat. Or, let's put it otherwise, is food insecure and has to depend on handouts from whatever agency may or may not be able to get the food to them. That is a staggering statement I just made. It's staggering anywhere in the world, but for a country that prides itself on being quote-unquote rich or advanced or civilized or democratic, it is an unspeakable reality. But what is the politics of it? Well, to be harsh but brief, neither political party has done much about this. West Virginia has been a poor state for, for as long as I can remember, and I've been around a while, it has been like states, uh, Mississippi, New Mexico, and others that have been at the bottom of the level of income, the poverty, uh, for decades in this country. Where were the Republican and Democratic governments, local, regional, federal, to deal with this problem? Well, they were AWOL. They weren't there. They didn't do anything. And the people who live there, they know it. They've lived 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Politicians come and go, but their poverty stays. And this has consequences. People get angry. They get bitter. That Some get resigned. Some leave the state. But here's the particular problem for the Democratic Party. It came out of the Great Depression as the party of Franklin Roosevelt the party of the working man and woman in this country, the party that created social security in the 30s, unemployment compensation in the 30s, the minimum wage in the 30s, and the federal jobs program that hired tens of thousands of West Virginians in the 1930s. Everybody looked to the Democratic Party. West Virginia, for example, was a solid union, pro-democratic state. But when the Democrats could not or would not protect, let alone advance, what had been accomplished in the 1930s, when slowly and then not so slowly, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and right up to the present, the situation in West Virginia 
deteriorated. The people became bitter. The Democrats were not there for them, and they're bitter. And when you're bitter and angry and you feel betrayed, as they have been, then maybe you become open to the blandishments of the other party. After all, if they say something better than what you're getting from the Democrats, give them a shot. What have you got to lose? And so, uh, you know, a circus barker like Trump can win them over. He can promise them the, the revival of the coal industry. Crazy stuff. No chance in the world that that would happen. And it hasn't. And it isn't going to. But the Democrats didn't provide a solution to that problem. So along comes somebody who says, I can reverse everything that happened in the last 50 years. And you want to believe it. So you go with him. There's no real mystery. It's not that people are voting against their own interest. That's an insult to those people. They are voting their interest, which is to express their horror, their bitterness, that one out of seven of them hasn't got enough to eat, and that neither political party has done anything to fundamentally change that situation. So your last point is where I would leave it. These people are going eventually to figure out that if they don't create a political party that is theirs, in the deepest sense of the phrase, theirs, they're going to wallow in this dead end between Republican and Democrat for another unknown number of years. We're going to leave it right there. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He is the author of many books, the latest being The System is the Sickness When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf.com and rdwolff, two Fs, rdwolf.com. Professor Wolf, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again next week. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.